0: Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Okay, burn the digital paper, a call to arms. So just to set the big scope of this, it's about, I feel like lots of us are struggling down in the um, trenches <coughs> trying to make data better, whatever that means. So I'm going to try and unpick what that means and um, work out how can we make, as Larry Pager say, data 10 times better. We, like improve the way we use our information tools. I'm going to start with this fellow, who's uh, uh, interesting. Does anyone know who he is? He's not that famous. He should be a bit more famous. Francis knows who he is. He's um, Stafford Beer, and he's a British cybernetician, which is operational research is another word for it. And there are a bunch of people in the 20th century who originally originally were trying to deal with the data from radar in the army and working out how to make that data actually affect an organisation, i.e. change how they fly the planes. And to do that, they found they had to study the theory of how organisations work and how information flows about them. I um, will come back to him near the end of the talk. But he has an interesting way he describes what happens when people get computers. So we're, we're right at the beginning of an uh, information revolution. I think it's very early on and not that much has happened yet. And he says, when you get a computer, there are four stages that people, organisations and societies go through. Um, and each stage, I'm going to warn you, is, uh, is disappointing at the end, even the first stage. And uh, we're only really at the second stage at the moment, generally speaking, in, in society. And Stafford's first step, when you hear about the computer, is amazement. And there's this lovely article by a chap called Ashby in a radio electronics mag- magazine in 1949, describing this new digital brain, electronic brain, um, and how, your, uh, how a computer is this strange, magical thing that can do anything, and no one really knows what it can do. And people are amazed by it, and they... They write articles and read about it, and they don't really know what it can do at all. And that ends at disappointment, obviously, because it doesn't deliver any value. You're just wandering at this mystical thing. The second stage is uh, what I call digital paper. And the digital paper is characterised by using all the same ideas that you already had and just transferring them over onto the computer. And it might be slightly faster or better, but they're basically the same ideas. And those are, you'll recognise all these ideas. The document... So this is um, a, um, from 1946, this document, and it looks like the kind of thing that anyone might write in Word now. In terms of form and what it does and how it conveys information, it's really no different. We're just using the computer as a slightly more powerful word processor. This is uh, email. Uh, again, email is um, exactly like the postal mail. It's not exactly like it. It's a bit faster, but you write your message, you put an address on it, it goes to an inbox at the other destination, you can attach things to it. It works, uh, the metaphor is the same as the postal service that people already understand. And I think it's important, one of the reasons digital paper is so successful is because it's very easy to teach people and people to learn how to do it. It's actually not that simple, it's quite complicated, but all the ideas are well, ones you already know or you've already absorbed from society. So this is why we're mainly still, people still emailing Word documents to each other, as you know, in 2013, 70 years into the computer revolution. This one's, um, can you see it? Um, this is a, a, it's a spreadsheet, a real spreadsheet. It's from an exhibition in 1896. It's their accounts. And as you can see, it looks very much like a spreadsheet. Now, spreadsheets are a bit special because they have slightly more power. They're not quite just digital paper because people can make them do things like some stuff. They can make them a little bit more, like do a little bit of information processing. And unfortunately, because their metaphor is so, uh, they're so popular, because they're based on paper and they let you do a little bit of extra computation. Uh, one of the consequences of that popularity is, of course, that they go wrong. Has, has anyone here, uh, everyone here, come across stories about spreadsheets causing big disasters? There's actually uh, a, an EU working group, the European Special Interest Group on Spreadsheet Risks, because spreadsheets are so dangerous. Um, this is an example of uh, J.P. Morgan losing nine billion dollars because of a spreadsheet. There are many, many examples if you look it up of errors in spreadsheets causing, causing great, very, very big difficulties. And that's because they're they're not very robust. Uh, and, people, and they're, they're, an over, they're an overstretched metaphor to use paper, essentially paper to do these actually quite complicated things so that's digital paper I've got, uh, I'm not going to let you ask questions now because I'm not allowed to but, <laughs> <laughs> cause they, they, uh, but what I'm going to do is come back to these stages and when we do the questions, specific sections, sections. and we'll have a set of questions on digital paper because as you shall see, each of, them, each of the four stages is quite um, different and if we just have them all in one go then we might forget about one of them so, so the current world for most people, like most consumers and most business people, is that kind of digital paperwork. So what do you do next if you go beyond that? You're a bit disappointed because you've got your computer, you put all your documents in it, and they get to, you can send them to other people quicker, but you've still not really gained the full power from this amazing information processing device. And Stafford Beers' next phase is to make data, to somehow do this thing called gathering up data. Now, here, who, here, here, who here actually thinks they know what data is, like what it really is? couple of people brave enough, but not very surprisingly few, given we're an open data institute. So I've only just realized this this year, but what data is, and it's going to, it's going to be a bit self-referential, but I'll try and explain it. Data is something which code can process. Um, so it's organized in a systematic way where everything's reliable and consistent and in, a, in, a, in a structure, a very, very rigid structure. And the reason the structure needs to be so rigid is because our programs are quite basic. Most of our programs essentially do a repetitive operation. They are literally like a recipe where you go, go to this thing and do this, go to the next one, do the same thing, go to the next one, do the same thing, go to the next one, do the same thing. And our our programs, our code, uh, is like that. And data just means something that's formatted so that kind of program works on it. And yes, you you can do lots of things with data. As well as coding on it, you can do statistics on it. But statistics is really just an algorithm like that. It's doing the same thing repeatedly, and everything it works on has to already be consistent for what you're doing to work. Um, so the reason to gather up this data is because then you, you then you get this new power. Once you've organised everything, you get the new power to use whatever analysis, whatever transactional <coughs> system on it, all sorts of things that you know you can do with computers. There are um, lots of different ways to gather up the data. We've got a bit of a problem at the moment, which we're, we're not that good at doing it yet. And this is, I think, the stage that, generally speaking, the world of IT is at. We're still trying to gather everything up as data. And... It, the classical way to do it is to hire a geek, someone like me, to write you a program that um, does whatever you need to do. So it like, might usually be a very expensive system to uh, control your prison doors or your supply chain or something where it's worth spending millions of dollars getting something to happen. And most computer systems are in that category. It's maintained by very expensive engineers, but they do do what they need to do. And the engineers are very pernickety, so they make sure that the data is all consistent everywhere. Um, as part of their job. So that's one way. Uh, It's not a very empowering way because you have to be quite rich to use it. The second way is to let someone else do that work and hire all the engineers and then use their application free or or perhaps pay a small amount for it. And people like Facebook and Google use that method. And they're gathering data, but they're gathering it as the kind of exhaust fumes of of other action. So while people are working with their digital paper, you can watch what they're doing and record bits of what they're doing and that gives you gives you data. Um, the trouble with relying on that kind of data is that you don't actually have it. Some other big uh, IT company has it, and it's not really designed to be used for you as a consumer or a business person. It's like it's it's lost in the cloud and used usually against you by maybe the NSA. Even um, another thing you can do to try and organise your data to make uh, the world of content and its data is to take other people's data. And uh, the ODI is very good at this. The fundamentally, the whole the open in open data is about making it easy for other people to reuse data. And this is something we do at, at ScrapeWiki quite a lot. It's what scraping is. Uh, these pictures are different world indicators. And we scrape them all into one database for the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And it's different data about things like maternal mortality and the lengths of the railway lines in all different countries. And we took it from 20 different sources and wrote a scraper to put it into, into one form. Um, and uh, they're the agency that handles, like, aid funding, for example, for uh, disaster relief funding, for example, for typhoons. So it's kind of quite important they have a good picture of the world. Now, this is a good method of getting data, but it's fundamentally cheating because it has to already be organised by somebody. The World Bank already organised the World Bank's data. All we're doing is moving it from one place to another place. It's not really creating new data. Uh, I'm giving you another Scrape Wiki example, because um, I can, which is... um, if you've got some digital paper, it's possible to take stuff out of it and make it into data. So we've got a, a tool that we're launching a, a version of in a couple of weeks' time called Table Extract, which lets you get data out of PDFs and finds tables in PDFs. And then when when you've got all of those tables, lets you unpick them and like unpivot the spreadsheets and make them into databases again. And this is this is quite hard, and it'll work in some cases, but it, it'll be a fundamentally be niche. This kind of tool you've probably how many of you have ever tried to use like a graphical user interface for, for scraping? Um, a few people. And did you find it worked a bit, but didn't do everything you needed? <laughs> not even that. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes people find a case where it works really well for them, but it doesn't generally work. Um, so it's a useful hack, but it's not solving the fundamental problem. It doesn't make our data world ten times better. Um, although it is a useful meanwhile. So um, yeah, So watch out for that table extract from ScraperWiki. The kind of obvious way of getting data in a computer that's just staring there is to persuade people to deliberately enter it, uh, to type it in, uh, in some way, for some reason. I've uh, had very little success at this. I think it probably works best if you've got lots of money and you've got lots of engineers as well. So even at Scraper you, we're a data company, but our CRM persuading everyone to use their tags in the customer relationship management software the same way, really hard. No one knows even why they need to tag it consistently, never mind... You know, the geeks sort of get it, and some of them will start to do it, and they'll write standards. But then the salespeople will completely ignore them. So there's, <laughs> so there's no. How many people have tried to do that, get people to organise data reliably by manually entering it, and failed or succeeded? <laughs> some some mixture. It it doesn't have a hundred percent success. Um, it's worth trying. I think though, this is where I come on to. You notice all of these methods are a bit rubbish. Um, I think there's a couple of ways we could make that better. And one way is is the old. Uh, You know, every problem has a solution, you can train people better, but I genuinely think this is data literacy. And we found at ScraperWiki that people literally don't know why you should put all numbers in one column, or why you should spell the words exactly the same when you've got categories in a spreadsheet, and why that might be useful later, and uh, why you should be careful about how you name things and be consistent about units. There's very basic things about organising data and why it needs to be organised, which – which most of most people don't get, and we we have a course uh, like a kind of basic what data is, what can be scraped, why you should organise it <coughs> uh, that we've, we've run for a couple of companies. Um, this is a, you have, 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 this keeps popping up as a subject that people, generally speaking, aren't data literate. They don't understand what it is, and I think um, I don't think it's too ambitious to imagine a society that sets out to solve that problem. Um, to give a comparable example. We, uh, 100 years ago nobody knew how to drive cars and it can take you know tens of hours to learn to drive a car but yet now basically most people learn to drive a car the same with reading and writing we teach everyone to read and write so there are these quite complex technical skills that nearly everyone's brain is capable of doing that we force people to learn and they do learn um, so we could add to that one a kind of data literacy one and then everyone's spreadsheets would all be beautifully organised maybe it's, it's optimistic but I think it would be, it would be if I was a government, I would certainly try it out and test it and see if, if there was a way of, of doing it. Um, it's just a slight side point, but related, is the um, there's been, in recent years, a movement to teach far more people to code. Things like Bloomberg Learning to Code, <laughs> sites like Code Academy, devices like the Raspberry Pi, this idea that basically everyone should know how to program. And I think this is kind of equivalent to data literacy. So the way it's, it's sensitive, which is equivalent, is the reason you need to organise data reliably is so you can run code on it. And if you don't understand what can be written, what programmes can do, then you don't understand why your data needs to be organised. So there's a relationship between like, data literacy that like, leads on to coding literacy, and I think in, in some ways that a data literacy movement and a uh, everyone learn to code movement are, uh, are equivalent. Um, and I suspect that if you were to teach everyone to code... Uh, enough that would help them be better at producing and maintaining good quality data, and working out where they need to use it in their businesses. So that's something else I'll try first. Trying to fix this data problem <laughs> for the whole society. Um, yeah, just to mention something that I haven't mentioned. You'll notice I haven't talked about technical standards. I think technical standards matter, and something like Linked Data will one day take off. But I think these other problems, the core problems about user experience, need to be solved like at the same time, concurrently with it, and, and it's not a solution by itself. Okay, so that's the situation we're in with getting data. Not great, but we're working on it. The big change that will make this all unnecessary is um, uh, what is called artificial intelligence. This is Hal from 2001. And when I say coding, it's about the kind of coding we tend to do at the moment. That's not necessarily the only way we could use computers. There are potentially more powerful ways, we just don't know how to do it yet. So our brains are very complicated information processing devices that just take in content from the world and categorize it and process it. And they go down into detail if necessary or they generalize when necessary and, and can do you know extremely powerful. Whereas the way we use computers is with these very strictly run recipes followed very quickly. There may be other ways of using computers. And you begin to see that with some attempts at AI like IBM's Watson winning Jeopardy. And you see it with things like Google Translate, where instead of writing a recipe, we use, use machine learning and you use like statistical techniques. It is still a recipe, but it begins to feel a bit more like um, a different kind of intelligence. It doesn't, it, it doesn't need data to work on it. can just work on, on the on general text of, of language in order to translate. It doesn't actually have to, 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 to turn it into, into strict structure. Um, I don't think we've got to a point where this is generally useful It's just specific use cases <laughs> like, like, translate- like translating language Where it's a bit useful But somebody might make a breakthrough Maybe Stephen Wolfram Maybe um, maybe not <laughs> we'll, we'll work out how to do it So we should keep, keep in mind That this data thing is just an obsession Because of the way we code uh, So Stafford's fourth stage This is, a, as you remember, stages That you go through when you discover the computer is where you realise you've gathered up all the data, you put it in a big database. I can just imagine someone in the 1970s is doing this on a mainframe. And you've got all this stuff sitting there, and nothing happens. It turns out the world doesn't get any better. You've just got a load of data in a database. And you might have a few marginal performance improvements or interface improvements, but basically the world is still the same. And his view, after studying organisations, is that you have to then have feedback loops. You have to have a mechanism for the data to actually influence the world. And that's absolutely vital. Um, and we're, everyone does this. Compu- you know, people do this with computers. But we're not very explicit about talking about it. And I don't think we have a good mm-hmm. shared language for it. This is a, another picture of, of Stafford Beer. He's a very interesting character. Uh, if you want to know more about him, I gave a lightning talk in Liverpool. It's on YouTube. If you search for Francis Irving Stafford Beer on YouTube, you'll find it. And it gives a lovely history. There's, um, he had an amazing, crazy project in Salvador Allende's communist government in, in Chile where he, um, uh, I'll show you a picture of it in a minute, where he uh, tried to instrument the whole society and make it into this ordered, ordered cybernetic um, kind of state. It sounds, it's, it's less its less authoritarian than it sounds. <laughs> anyway, watch my talk if you're interested in in, 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 in Stafford and uh, studying the structure of organisations. So he spent his career teaching businesses how to do this stuff earlier on, before he went to Chile, um, Later on, he went mad after, after Pinochet killed Alendi and uh, had his coup, and Stafford went off and lived in a cottage in Wales and became an eccentric, like kind of zen practitioner. But earlier in his career, he did lots of work on businesses. And his view of feedback loops was that you have to build your information system to have a layered feedback. And if you think about your body... Um, you've got cells and you've got organs and within the cells there's communication and between the organs there's communication and it's not a strict hierarchy, my brain doesn't control it all sometimes the things below control my brain my brain just happens to do a certain kind of information processing so we, we're kind of a, a, a layer thing a tangled hierarchy is the, what Hofstadter would call it and th- this is his design for a factory and I don't understand it, I'm not going to pretend to but notice it has lots of loops where things come back on themselves and they kind of have feedback and are homeostatic I notice also it's layered, there's boxes inside boxes, and he wrote lots of books about this stuff. I've no idea how good they are. Uh, I assume they've improved our industrial society to be more efficient, but I've never seen anyone actually write up a good because uh, this is all done, you know, 50 years ago. So it's quite possible the reason capitalism is partly so efficient is because lots of this stuff's already done inside corporations, but I have no idea. Um, this is what he calls a viable system. So a viable system is also. Um, as, as well as having feedback loops, it's also robust. So when you when you when part of it breaks or it gets pushed or there has an unusual external things happen to it, it recovers. So a bit like if, if you know, if you hit my hand, it'll hurt, it'll get cut in it, but then the cut will heal, and over time I'll be fine. So we, we our, our bodies are very adaptable to extreme changes. And um, so this is a diagram he uses to describe the viable systems model, and you can see in it quite clearly. It like, almost does look like a, a, a biology, A-level biology textbook picture. With sort of organelles sat inside an, an organ, and then here, this is a bit like a circuit in here, but it's inside a sort of organ which is linked up to, to another thing. And we don't really think of computer systems in this way, or organisations in this way, although the successful ones often are structured in this way. So, yeah, so is fourth stage, that not many people are anywhere near, <laughs> is, is have feedback loops. Um, I mentioned he did this project in Chile this is, I just have to show this slide because it was fun, I'll make you watch my YouTube talk about stuff a bit, this is the control room, of they, they put in telex machines all over Chile where people at factories entered in data and it got wired back to a mainframe in the uh, headquarters and then they had this kind of brainstem control room which had these seats in it it looks like from the Star Trek Enterprise where they could see all this data about the economy and then make like strategic decisions based off it uh, in 1971 this is like, this is this is uh, yeah, government data, uh, open data very early on. It's called CyberSYN, C Y B E R S Y N, if you want to look it up. So, yeah, so feedback loops. That's what we do once we've got, in terms of the Open Data Institute, once we've got lots of open data, it's feedback loops is what we should do with it next. <laughs> um, I'm afraid it's going to get worse because that was four stages, we've only got to stage two. Like I said, they're all disappointing. Even when you've got your feedback loops, you'll still find that you haven't really gained full benefit from your new information processing devices. And the reason for that is described best in this quote by by Stafford. The question which asks how to use the computer in the enterprise is, in short, the wrong question. A better formulation is to ask how the enterprise should be run given that computers exist. And the best version of all is the question asking what, given computers the enterprise now is. So what he's what he's saying is that we can restructure the whole of society in a different way now we have the magical power of the internet and computers and smartphones. And, um, and we haven't even tried to do that. We have even really done many experiments in doing it. Um, and there will clearly be more efficient forms of organisation. So it's this kind of change that makes me realise we're potentially right at the beginning of hundreds of years of, 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 of the information revolution to settle in. It took several centuries after the invention of the printing press before copyright law and the novel and libraries became like concepts that were simplified and given one word and that everyone understood them. They're all actually very complicated concepts. And likewise, with computers, uh, we're still very early on. So, uh, Yeah. Uh, and, and the call to arms... <laughs> Is that I think we need to be doing more and more radical things in terms of research and um, and trying things out to push us beyond this stage. We've basically been stuck at digital paper for thirty years, nearly. And uh, things like open data are attempts to push out that. They're like they're radical attempts to try and change that. And I think we could do with some more of them because um, to give the full power of these systems to individual people for their benefit is um, is is what it's all about. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.